Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. I have had the option to spend all the time with her as well, and she's like Liz, very warm, very mm-hmm. giving, very generous. You meet her for five seconds and you think that you've known her for a long time. She has this quality that, um, you know, is really so, should be celebrated and so important in interpersonal relationships. But she's also a really good business person. Mm -hmm. So how fortuitous that you're able to learn from someone that is so learned, both from the EQ standpoint, the emotional quotient, and also business acumen. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting because we're talking about two women. We're talking about two extremely bright, extremely strong, funny, powerful women. The one thing that I've noticed from them is they take the emotion out of the business. Mm. It's not a personal, it's a business decision. And a business decision has nothing to do with how you feel. And, um, you know, learning from these two strong women, I mean, I was raised by a a mother, a single mother. Mm -hmm. Um, I have an older sister. So my whole life I've been surrounded by really smart, really powerful, funny, beautiful women. And I have a connection. I just, I have a lot of friends that are female. Mm -hmm. And um, it just, it is what it is. It's, it's, It's nothing more than what it is at face value. It's a friendship. It's a strong friendship. It's a mentor, mentee. Um, but it's amazing at what the, 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 what the women have taught me yeah. about an industry that is so male dominated. Not fascinating. You know, there's so much discussion about the women as a gender role in various iterations. And what you're describing, I find really interesting because it's not because they're women, but they happen to be women. Yeah. It became self-evident that as human beings, they're so worthy to learn from and to form lifelong friendships with. Sure. And they just happen to be women, which I love. Yeah. I think when something is true, it reveals itself. You don't Absolutely. have to label it. Well, and it's interesting because a lot of people will say, well, why, why would you say this about a man? If you, were, if you had a, a male mentor, would you say they're a strong, powerful? You know what? Yeah, you have to, because not all leaders are the same. No. There are some that you learn a lot from. But one thing I think I've learned from all the women in my life is the emotional intelligence. And I don't know <laughs> if it's something you're taught or if it comes from within or a combination of, but you have to be empathetic. You have to, I mean, there are times where you're like, you know, someone just had a loss in their, in their family. Yeah. You're not going to call them up and say, hey, where's your purchase order? Right? Hey, yeah. what are we doing about this placement? You, you need to call, see how they're doing, and then end it at that call because you care. Yeah. You don't have to follow it up with any business. And so I think I've learned the emotional intelligence from a lot of the women in my life. That is such an awesome observation on your part. And I tend to think often that it goes way back into our biological roots. So if you think about mammoth Neanderthal times, what happened when humanity was just starting to discover itself, right? Man went and slayed the beast. They had to be tough and strong. Women stayed behind and gathered versus hunting. They sure. kept the fire alive. They nurtured the young, right? They reared the kids. So they had to develop the qualities that are conducive to what they did. 
So in a way, celebrating gender for what it is and what's meant and what's the core strength are and capitalizing on it. I think that's where that strength lies. Mm -hmm. Not again, identifying as such, but saying there's so many reasons why it evolved sure. over many, many centuries. And what we're seeing today is, I think, the conversation being shifted sometimes in the different direction and becoming competitive. It's not a competition. It's complementary. It is. It is. But, you know, it's interesting. Um, I have a daughter, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I'm looking at her saying, okay, what can I do? What difference can I make in this industry, in this yeah. world to make sure that she goes in a better place, right? Yeah. And um, it's interesting you mentioned competition. Men are competitive, but yet they, they respect each other where they're not going to kill each other over something. They're like, oh, there's room for all of us there. <laughs> Women, I've noticed, are competitive. I don't know who uh, came up with this, like, there's room for one woman at the, the executive level at this distributor or wine or whatever. And so it's almost like that pedestal. So hmm. a woman is killing herself to get to that pedestal. Mm -hmm. And women are trying to pull her off because they want to go up. And they don't have that camaraderie. Hmm. Um, and, and they have that when they get together and they get to these seminars. And then when they go back, they revert back because it's easy. Mm -hmm. And someone needs to tell them that, <coughs> you know, there's room for more than one. That pedestal is huge. Look at how many men are on their pedestal in that executive level. Thousands. And yet women are killing themselves to get to the top. And I just sometimes I'm like, stop. You guys can do so much more. Us men. We're not capable. Women, if they truly get together and they're not as competitive with each other, I mean, it's competition's good. Yeah. It brings out the best in people, but yeah. also brings out the worst in people. And sometimes I look, I'm like, you know, if you guys work a little bit harder together and you guys don't fight with each other and you guys don't knock each other down, this will not be a male-dominated industry. I think that's a really salient point, and I'm going to toast it with our next line, <laughs> but let's drink to increasing the size of the pie as opposed to fighting for a slice. Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers. What a lovely nose. I love this wine. This is um, this is our favorite house wine. Mm. Kid goes to bed. Um, we get a little smoked salmon. Not lox, but like a warm smoked salmon. Okay. Okay. Um, at Whole Foods, we pick up from the little smoked salmon section and the little candy salmon nuggets and Pinot Noir. It is awesome. It is. Uh, that is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm always thinking either duck, chicken, sure. beets, mushrooms, all kinds of things I've tried with Pinot, but I think I have yet to try salmon and now I'm pretty motivated yeah. to. Smoked salmon. Smoked salmon. Because it has that candied texture to it. No, I understand. Um, but yeah, this is our 2016 Pinot Noir from mm. the same Carneros Vineyard. It's our estate Pinot. Mm. Um, this is what, these are the wines that we get into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's, it's Carneros. It's not trying to be anything else. It's as Carneros as Carneros Pinot can get. You know, there's a quality to Carneros because of maritime influence and such like that. And those gusty winds that not mm -hmm. so good for humans, but apparently does something for the, for the plants. It has this presence that's very subtle. Yeah. It's not overwhelming at all. For those that like more elegant, understated wines, I think it's a very good region to explore. It is. Uh, you know, they're, they're doing some interesting things in Carneros. They're doing some Cabernet and some Merlot and uh, Cab Franc. Um, but I think that Chardonnay and Pinot are, are really 
the, the two varietals that tend to do really, really well out there. Yeah. When it's done right. Absolutely. And so, 16 Vintage was kind to you? Uh, 16 Vintage was kind. Um, it, it was, you know, what followed 16 was 17. Yeah. And there's this stigma with 17. Of course. But when you look at Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, all that was harvested and done with before the fires. Yes. And a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of people look at a vintage. I've always been taught you look at the producer. Gene always said, is anyone going to turn down their mixed case of DRC because it was an off vintage? <laughs> it's true, right? No one is going to say, oh, no, no, we're not going to have any of that because it's an off vintage. They're like, oh, it's a great producer. And what's funny is uh, even, even in 17, there's a lot of amazing wines in Napa Valley because a lot of the producers said, okay, this is what worked best for us. The other stuff we're not going to use. So productions could be a lot less. Our Cabernet, our state Cabernet, we did 980-something cases of the Cabernet instead of 10,000. Yeah. But it was the best possible wine we can have. So there's two reasons for that, I feel like. And please correct me if I'm wrong. Number one reason is that there's a brand of Napa and all the expectations that come with it that no one in their right mind would challenge with respect to their own brand because it is not something that's survivable. The marketplace sure. has become so sophisticated and so saturated with good wine. If you're going to put something in a bottle that doesn't taste good for the sake of a dollar, you're going to lose. Sure. Long term, you're going to lose. Absolutely. So it's just a bad business decision. Yeah. Now, ethically speaking, from the standpoint of integrity of individual brands, they um, almost uniformly, from what I've observed, are so invested into what they do, they would not dare compromise it and mess with the consumer's perception and pocketbook. So there's that. So sure. you've protected, it's almost like an insurance policy. Am I, am I seeing it correctly? Uh, you're seeing it from a very positive side. There's yeah. the flip side of it where okay. you have restaurateurs and retailers and psalms and the wine buyers, the ones who allow that wine to have access to the customer. Mm -hmm. Because in order for you to go to a retail shop or a restaurant and find our wines, mm -hmm. someone has to make the decision to bring that wine on the list. Yeah. Now, if they decide, I'm not going to bring this vintage because I'm not a fan of that vintage, none of their customers have access to that. Where does this misperception come from? As a media member, I tend to um, shine a spotlight in my own mind on the press saying this vintage is A, B, and C. And technically, I don't really see a big differentiator between that vintage happening in the North Coast and Central Coast what could be disastrous for Napa could be the best thing that ever happened to Santa Rita Hills and so on and so forth. So I place some of the accountability on generalizing sure. on the media level. Anybody else that we can hold accountable? Um, media, as long as it involves uh, print and bloggers and mm -hmm. influencers and all that, then yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, even if you look at vintage where it wasn't a fire thing, 1998, oh, media panned it. <laughs> but what happened was media panned the 98 vintage. Um, they said, horrible, don't drink it. It's not worth the investment. So people tried to skip over it. I remember wineries were given deals like crazy everywhere. And the wines were good. And now the 98s, if you happen to have any, are amazing. The other vintage that, you know, 2000 was interesting too. Yes. Right? Um, 2006 was interesting. 
um, which, which had a little bit of that. But it also fell between, so uh, the 2000 vintage fell between uh, 99 and 01, both great vintages. Yeah. Um, 2006 fell between 05 and 07. Once again, great vintages. Then you have 2011. A lot of people are like, oh yeah, the 2011s, they're a little green. They're not, they're not quite uh, uh, put together properly. They're, mm-hmm. they're not there yet. Yeah. And we don't think they ever will be. Open a bottle of 11. It's phenomenal. 2011s that people were trying to stay away from have really come together and they're just beautiful. Uh, you know, 17 is not far from it. 17, in my humble opinion, shaping up to be phenomenal sure because what happened to 15 up until that fires perfect perfect growing season perfect vintage well a lot of people had picked what they wanted up until that point there was a lot that was left yeah but not a lot there's probably five to ten percent no one's ever gonna know that number right somewhere at the high ten percent at the low five percent that wasn't harvested yeah there's some people that aren't making any wine in that vintage there's a few people that aren't making any 2017 and there's some people that are making a lot less yeah so here's a teachable moment for the consumer. You and I are so on the same page with what you just described. Back when 97, 98 came out, I was in the wine business. 97 was supposed to be the best vintage ever. Um, 98, not so much. It's a little bit of a clone of 11, you know, some weather events, cooler. Um, exactly what you described happened in my own cellar. 90s are showing brilliantly. Some 97s do too, but they're falling apart mm-hmm. a lot quicker. 98 has a lot, a lot to gnaw on. Yeah. Meaning intellectually, there's still a lot of bargains. You know, there's so many good things about 98 that I could sure. say. Then, of course, the vintage just you cited, and then the 2011. That was a big baby with the bathwater when it comes to media, especially. Challenging vintage, but what happened? Winemakers, you know, and actually viticulturalists and vineyardists, that's where their jobs were tested. Because mm-hmm. we're pretty fortunate in Napa, weather-wise, oh, unlike absolutely. Europe. Um, so complacency, there was no room for that, that vintage. You had to really think on your feet. You had to do a lot of work in the vineyard. Sure. So it tested a lot of people that are brilliant mm-hmm. um, and very good at what they do. What happens when a challenge comes along? The ensuing result is yeah. so much more interesting. Sure. So the opportunity for you guys to go out and seek those vintages, outsmart those naysayers, and actually fill your cellar and enjoy those wines that are very worthwhile and oftentimes are bargains. Sure. Well, it's interesting. Like, you know, when you talk 97, 2007, yeah. great vintages, you know, more 100-point wines in that specific vintage. Um, Billy Joel had an album, uh, a Q&A album, and someone was asking about... Um, uh, the song he did with Brendan Eddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talks about, you know, um, Eddy was like the guy who, the, 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 the high school kid who peaked too soon. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because I think some of those great vintages, you know, they peaked too soon. They, 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 they peaked when the critics were tasting them and when people were buying them. But, you know, it can't show that great in the beginning and then hold on for 20 years, 30 years. Some will argue that, yes, it can. But from my personal experience, I've tasted things. I'm like, wow, that needs time. I've never been able to say, oh, that's so great today, and I can't wait to drink it 40 years from now. (laughs) You know, it's it's not not the same. But, yeah, some of those vintages, they just, they're like uh, Eddie. They peaked a little too soon. 
late bloomer. Remember that yeah. 2011 late bloomer. So if you see it in the shelf, don't don't walk away. No, uh, chances are you'll get a deal on it. Exactly. <laughs> cool. Great intel. Um, so we're inching closer and closer to your current place of employment, Claude Duval. Yeah. How did you get that job? Well, so after Hansel, um, I had a short stint, and then for a few months, I ended up at a winery called Eller's Estate. Oh, cool. And uh, I started there in 2010 mm-hmm. and doing national sales. And uh, it was really fun because the winery was uh, organic and biodynamically farmed. Mm-hmm. Um, small production, all estate fruit, similar to Hansel. They didn't buy anything. They didn't. Mm-hmm. And they only made what they made. And uh, it was really fun because a lot of people didn't know much about that winery. And the winery was held in trust by a uh, uh, foundation that gives all its money to cardiovascular research. And a lot of people are like, oh, you guys are the nonprofit winery. You can't be nonprofit. Uh, you can't be a 5013C nonprofit and have anything to do with alcohol, tobacco, or firearms. Mm. So they're for profit. But what you do with your profit, someone can't dictate that. Yes. Um, but separate from the what the winery did with their profits, the philanthropy aspect of it, the wines were fantastic. And um, that's what drew me to Ellers. And uh, it was a fun team. Kevin Morrissey was a winemaker. Mm. Um, he had a great vineyard team of uh, seven or eight vineyard, dedicated vineyard workers for 42 acres. Having seven or eight people tend to one vineyard year-round is unheard of. But all that care... That went into the vineyards, produced some amazing fruit, mm. which in turn produced some amazing wine. Sure. And so I was there for almost seven years. And um, it was, I had uh, I had someone reach out to me about the position here at Cote d'Ivoire. And mm-hmm. they said, well, you know, this is what they're doing. They're changing everything. They're shifting everything to an estate model. Production's going from 90000 down to 30000 35000 And is it something you're interested in? I said, is it still owned by the same family? And they said, yeah. And so I was like, I'm interested because mm-hmm. here's a winery that has been around since 72. It's almost at its 50th anniversary, right, of, of its first harvest. It's still owned by the same family. But now it's held by what I consider the magical generation is generation three. Mm. Generation one puts their heart and soul into it. Okay. Generation two runs it or sometimes doesn't want to because they see that the family put their heart and soul into it and they're like, there has to be an easier way to do this because <laughs> generation one has the passion. Yeah. And if you can't get generation two clicked on, you lose it. Yeah. Because it's, it's too hard to say no to a big check. And I don't blame the families that have done it. They, they, it's the American dream. They built something, a lot of success. Someone said, you can retire and your next few generations will be taken care of. Why not? But Generation 3, Generation 3 has that nostalgia of what Generation 1 had. Right? As kids, we look at our grandparents. We always look at our parents and we're like, oh. But we never look at our grandparents like, oh. We're like, oh, our grandparents are so great. My daughter looks at my mom as the greatest grandmother in the world. And I'm like, oh, the stuff my mom has put me through. But then I do the same things my mom did that I was like, oh, I'll never do that. And I'm doing that. But what's funny is I look at my mom and I'm like, that's my mom. But my kid looks at this magical, mythical grandmother, the grandparent figure. And I think generation three looks at what generation one did and says, 
I see what you wanted to do. I see what you did and I can continue it and I can find ways to make it better. That's such a great way of framing right? it. Right, And here we are, generation three yeah. is here on a day-to-day -day basis. And generation two was involved and they were great and they didn't sell. Yeah. And now generation three is running it. And what's cool about generation three is we're, we're talking about, all right, well, our 50th harvest is coming, 50th anniversary is coming. Generation three says, keep in mind, generation four is six months and a year old. In 30 years, they're going to be generation four. So they're thinking long-term. The generational mentality is so important. It is. Um, you mentioned, you know, grandparents dream the first generation. And if it sticks, if it becomes a dream of future generations, which is a prerequisite for the continuity, then you have to think in 100-year sure. segments. And then that dream gets realized not just by them, but they galvanize a team around them of people like yourself. To you, it's more than a job. It is. Um, my, my job here is to make sure the wines get out to the right places yeah. and the story is told. Um, because I always said you can make the best wine in the world, but if no one knows about it and no one's buying it and supporting it, <clears throat> what do you have? Nothing. It could be the best wine, but if no one's buying it, yep. then it's over. Well, there's a group of people that work on the production side and the vineyard side, and they're growing the grapes, and they're making the wine, and they're bottling it. How many families is that? So the selling part of it, there's so much responsibility. Mm. Because I'm not just working hard to put food on my table. By working hard... I'm making sure everyone else can do their job so that we can all put food on each other's tables. Now, if they don't make a great wine, it's hard to put food on my table. So they did their job, right? What they put in this bottle is the best they can do. Well, now it's my job to make sure that story gets told and that wine gets into the right places so they can feed their families and they can survive. But it's, it's, it's a different way of looking at it. And, and sometimes I, I try not to get so wrapped up in that because there's a lot of pressure. Of if course. I don't do my job, people are affected. People's livelihood is affected. If the taste room doesn't do their job, if the wine club doesn't do their job, other lives are affected. It's not just wine. We always joke, oh, it's only wine. We're not curing cancer. You hear that yeah. all the time in the winery, mm -hmm. right? In the wine world. Oh, it's not, you know, it's, it's only old grape juice. Yeah, but it's people's livelihood. That is an excellent um, point to kind of flesh out a little bit. I think we're going to try another wine because yes. I am chomping at the bit. I love your Merlot. And I know it's coming up next. So our Merlot, this is the first uh, bottling of our estate Merlot since 2013. Wow. 2013 was the um, uh, last vintage where we had the purchased fruit. Mm -hmm. And 2016 is when we shifted everything to the estate model mm -hmm. on the Merlot. And, um, you know, it's funny. Everyone says, oh, is Merlot making a comeback? I don't know. Did it ever go has away? Has it ever left? It's, it's the number two planted varietal in California, after a red varietal after Ca uh, Cabernet. So it's Cabernet Sauvignon and then it's Merlot. How about that? And, and Pinot's far, far down the line in yeah. terms of acreage. And so, you know, Merlot is in everything. 
Uh, Merlot is in Cabernet. Merlot is in Merlot. Merlot is in uh, Plains. And this this Merlot is is textbook Merlot. It is classic. It's, indeed. When when people talk about Merlot, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about that chocolate, mm. that that dark fruit. So there's definitely a lot of hedonic qualities in this wine, which is why I've always liked it. And I'm excited that it's 100% estate program now because it's always been like exactly how you described it. It's textbook. It's something that I want. You know, this is very fulfilling mm -hmm. to taste a Merlot that, you know, really meets all of your wants and needs. Sure. There's only one downside. 2,000 cases. Oh, my. <laughs> and it sounds like, you know, someone's like, oh, well, 2,000 cases yeah. is a lot. Well, if you were to get one case, that means, and everyone wanted one case, that means there are only 2,000 people that can each get a case. Yeah, exactly. It's and, not a lot. And on that note, I just wanted to talk about consumer participation. There's so many conversations about Napa wine in particular, so let's pick on that for a moment. Obviously, there's price point. True. That's always front and center. And that could be debated from the validity point of view, meaning whether or not it really is worth X amount of money or is it being charged because a certain standard for pricing in Napa. We'll leave that alone for now because what I want to focus on is the value that you get for your money and also the emotional value. Sure. Because what you just described, livelihood of all the people that touch that plant, um, it really is multitude of individuals that are involved in that bottle of wine that winds up on your table. So if that's of value to you, should you do the research and find out who is actually family owned as opposed to, and I'm not pitting them you against know, yeah, each other. No, it's, it's interesting you say that because yes, there's a family aspect of it that is yeah. family owned and that means a lot. Yeah. To me, that means a lot. Yeah. But you know, there are times I hear someone say, oh, well, you know, um, this uh, uh, president or CEO of this big corporation said this or donated money to this, and I'm against that cost, so I'm going to boycott them. Okay, but who works at those stores, right? Who works at the Starbucks's? Who works at the Chick-fil-A's? Who works at the Name Your Place? They're locals. Yeah. The Starbucks here, the kids, they're all local. I say kids, they're anywhere from 18 to 50 60 years old and they're, they're people of our community yeah so while i might not agree with what someone else says and i'm not i'm not gonna say oh well they're a corporation because it yes it's a corporation in terms of the umbrella but those are human beings working in there until the day that everything is all uh uh, uh, uh mechanic and automated and, and there's robots i mean right now you can already place your orders via apps and stuff but a human being has to touch that. So I'm not, you know, while I might not agree with what someone else does and they might not agree with what I do in terms of what beliefs we have, those are all people. So I have a hard time with I'm only going to support family. I'm only going to support small business. I support everyone. But I've been to small businesses and they might not have customer service that I want. Then I go to a something that's a corporation, they have great customer service. Then I go, sometimes it's the, it's the flip. I go to small family owned business and they're amazing. And I'm like, yes, I'm only going to shop here. And I go to a corporation, they're the worst. You have good days and bad days. So we live in the age of the consumer. Yeah. We have so many choices, infinite. Absolutely. Including wine. And um, 
a lot of us make claims that we want to support local. We care about the integrity. We care about the organics, biodynamics, all kinds of issues that are valid and important. However, it's amazing how we can say one thing but do another. Sure. <laughs> Humans are excellent at that. So the challenge, I suppose, that I pose is um, if you really claim to love Napa, let's just say you've come here and, and you love it, then shouldn't you support what makes Napa Napa? And it's not the sign and it's not just geography, which is a formidable factor and things of that nature, the confluence, the geography, meaning climate and such like that and, and location, um, but also the human part of it. And in order for Napa to not just survive, but thrive, you have to purchase the wine. How do we sync up this mindset when people say, I love Napa, but I'm going to go to my nearest wine shop and just pick something else? Well, I think it's a balance, right? Um, what you get from wineries in Napa Valley when you come out and you visit or you go log on to the website and visit, because you can actually visit a winery without mm -hmm. actually going to a winery. Mm -hmm. Now, you can buy wines at the winery that you can't find in your local wine shop. You can um, have access to a certain quantity of wine if it's allocated to a wine shop. A wine shop might only get a three-pack of this wine or a six-pack of that wine, but you become a member. You're, you're, you start working with a winery, mm -hmm. and now you have a relationship, and you're like, can I get 12 bottles of that? Yeah, yeah, you can. So I think it's, it's, it's trying to find a balance mm -hmm. because – you can't only buy wines from wineries directly mm -hmm. and you can't buy wines from retailers and restaurants only because if you only support the wineries in the retail and restaurant world, they can't survive. And then the prices have to go up on the other end. So yeah. there's this balance of, um, so it's hard. It's, it's a really hard thing to answer. Um, I think having the relationship with the winery directly mm -hmm. gets you, gets you access to things that you don't have access to. And I think the balance of power has shifted a bit in the sense that a lot of storied wines like Clou Duval were so popular that, you know, even though you, in your case, it was large production, but I'm just saying wineries of that notoriety. And now they're much more in tune with the consumer because they have more to share. They have more time, more product, more resources. And they want to dedicate it to that direct relationship. So as much as we're not discouraging you going to a local wine shop, to your local purveyor that you have a relationship with. It's not about that. It's really a matter of if you are developing a relationship with a brand True. and getting to know it and investing in it, Absolutely. your time and money. There's so much more largesse coming back. There's so many perks. There's so many good things about this relationship that if you love the wine and you love the story, there's a reward there, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's funny because I have a lot of rest uh, retailers that have sent their customers mm, to the winery. How cool. And now a lot of times retailers are like, well, if I send you there, you've got to buy it from me. Sure. You can buy the wines from the retailer that he or she may carry, but you can have access to wines that the retailer will never touch. And you can still do both. Right. And it's about the feeling again. So you come to Clodeval, you fall in love with, with the, the atmosphere and the wines and the people well, you can get a single vineyard Merlot that we make 500 cases of here Yeah. that you can't find anywhere else. And then when you go back, you go to your retailer, you're like, hey, I'm going to buy this Merlot off your shelf. But, you know, I have three bottles of this Merlot that you will never see. 
Yeah. And, you know, they're like, oh, I'm jealous. When are you going to share that with me? Or whatever the case may be. But they're not mad that they send a customer here because we're not stealing their customer. There you go. We're, we're adding on to. And, um, you know, one thing that wineries have now started doing is we're really looking at our, at our customers. Yeah. What do they want? What are they looking for? Yeah. It's less about what we want to shove yeah. to them. It's what we ask them, what are you, what are you looking for? I mean, when Claude Ball started in 72, wineries didn't have tasting rooms. That concept came later. They converted their old barrel room in 1983 to a tasting room because mm-hmm. they were tired of people pulling up to, uh, to the driveway saying, hey, can I taste your wines? And they'd go grab six bottles and little uh, metal, you know, those little metal holders. And, and they, they pour the wine. They go, okay, well, thanks so much. You know, enjoy uh, finding our wines in Chicago. And off they would go. There was no, oh, well, you know, we have a wine club. You can sign up. We'll ship you wine. That didn't exist. Yeah. So all this is, is really new. I mean, Artisium was open in 83. 35 years we had that space before we opened the new Herondale House. And the Herondale House is designed toward what guests want. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palo Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.